0: Letter 10. My dear Wormwood, I was delighted to hear from Trip Tweez that your patient has made some very desirable new acquaintances, and that you seem to have used this event in a really promising manner. I gather that the middle-aged married couple who called at his office are just the sort of people we want him to know, rich, smart, superficially intellectual, and brightly skeptical about everything in the world. I gather they are even vaguely pacifist, not on moral grounds, but from an ingrained habit of belittling anything that concerns the great mass of their fellow men, and from a dash of purely fashionable and literary communism. This is excellent. And you seem to have made good use of all his social, sexual, and intellectual vanity. Tell me more. Did he commit himself deeply? I don't mean in words. There is a subtle play of looks and tones and laughs by which a mortal can imply that he is of the same party as those to whom he is speaking. That is the kind of betrayal you should especially encourage, because the man does not fully realize it himself, and by the time he does you will have made withdrawal difficult. No doubt he must very soon realize that his own faith is in direct opposition to the assumptions on which all the conversation of his new friends is based. I don't think that matters much, provided that you can persuade him to postpone any open acknowledgement of the fact, and this, with the aid of shame, pride, modesty, and vanity, will be easy to do. As long as the postponement lasts, he will be in a false position. He will be silent when he ought to speak, and laugh when he ought to be silent. He will assume, at first only by his manner, but presently by his words, all sorts of cynical and skeptical attitudes which are not really his. But if you play him well, they may become his. All mortals tend to turn into the thing they are pretending to be. This is elementary. The real question is how to prepare for the enemy's counterattack. The first thing is to delay as long as possible the moment at which he realizes this new pleasure as a temptation. Since the enemy's servants have been preaching about the world as one of the great standard temptations for 2,000 years, this might seem difficult to do. But fortunately, they have said very little about it for the last few decades. In modern Christian writings, though I see much, indeed more than I like, about mammon, I see few of the old warnings about worldly vanities, the choice of friends, and the value of time. All that, your patient would probably classify as puritanism. And may I remark in passing that the value we have given to that word is one of the really solid triumphs of the last hundred years. By it, we rescue annually thousands of humans from temperance, chastity, and sobriety of life. Sooner or later, however, the real nature of his new friends must become clear to him, and then your tactics must depend on the patient's intelligence. If he is a big enough fool, you can get him to realize the character of the friends only while they are absent. Their presence can be made to sweep away all criticism. If this succeeds, he can be induced to live, as I have known many humans to live, for quite long periods, two parallel lives. He will not only appear to be, but actually be, a different man in each of the circles he frequents. Failing this, there is a subtler and more entertaining method. He can be made to take a positive pleasure in the perception that the two sides of his life are inconsistent. This is done by exploiting his vanity. He can be taught to enjoy kneeling beside the grocer on Sunday, just because he remembers that the grocer could not possibly understand the urbane and mocking world which he inhabited on Saturday evening. And, contrarywise, to enjoy the body and blasphemy over the coffee with these admirable friends all the more, because he is aware of a deeper, spiritual world within him which they cannot understand. You see the idea? The worldly friends touch him on one side and the grocer on the other, and he is the complete, balanced, complex man who sees round them all. Thus, while being permanently treacherous to at least two sets of people, he will feel, instead of shame, a continual undercurrent of self-satisfaction. Finally, if all else fails, you can persuade him, in defiance of conscience, to continue the new acquaintance on the ground that he is, in some unspecified way, doing these people good by the mere fact of drinking their cocktails and laughing at their jokes and that to cease to do so would be priggish, intolerant, and, of course, puritanical. Meanwhile, you will, of course, take the obvious precaution of seeing that this new development induces him to spend more than he can afford and to neglect his work and his mother. Her jealousy and alarm at his increasing evasiveness or rudeness will be invaluable for the aggravation of the domestic tension. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. LETTER 11 My dear Wormwood, everything is clearly going very well. I am especially glad to hear that the two new friends have now made him acquainted with their whole set. All these, as I find from the record office, are thoroughly reliable people. Steady, consistent scoffers and worldlings who, without any spectacular crimes, are progressing quietly and comfortably towards our father's house. You speak of there being great laughers. I trust this does not mean that you are under the impression that laughter as such is always in our favor. The point is worth some attention. I divide the causes of human laughter into joy, fun, the joke proper, and flippancy. You will see the first among friends and lovers reunited on the eve of a holiday. Among adults, some pretext in the way of jokes is usually provided, but the facility with which the smallest witticisms produce laughter at such a time shows that they are not the real cause. What that real cause is, we do not know. Something like it is expressed in much of that detestable art which the humans call music, and something like it occurs in heaven, a meaningless acceleration in the rhythm of celestial experience quite opaque to us. Laughter of this kind does us no good, and should always be discouraged. Besides. The phenomenon is of itself disgusting and a direct insult to the realism, dignity, and austerity of hell. Fun is closely related to joy, a sort of emotional froth arising from the play instinct. It is very little use to us. It can sometimes be used, of course, to divert humans from something else which the enemy would like them to be feeling or doing, but in itself it has wholly undesirable tendencies. It promotes charity, courage, contentment, and many other evils. The joke proper, which turns on sudden perception of incongruity, is a much more promising field. I am not thinking primarily of indecent or body humor, which, though much relied upon by second-rate tempters, is often disappointing in its results. The truth is that humans are pretty clearly divided on this matter into two classes. There are some to whom no passion is as serious as lust, and for whom an indecent story ceases to produce lasciviousness precisely insofar as it becomes funny. There are others in whom laughter and lust are excited at the same moment and by the same things. The first sort joke about sex because it gives rise to many incongruities. The second cultivate incongruities because they afford a pretext for talking about sex. If your man is of the first type, body humor will not help you. I shall never forget the hours which I wasted, hours to me of unbearable tedium, with one of my early patients in bars and smoking rooms before I learned this rule. Find out which group the patient belongs to and see that he does not find out. The real use of jokes or humor is in quite a different direction, and it is specially promising among the English who take their sense of humor so seriously that a deficiency in this sense is almost the only deficiency at which they feel shame. Humor is for them the all-consoling and, mark this, the all-excusing grace of life. Hence it is invaluable as a means of destroying shame. If a man simply lets others pay for him, he is mean. If he boasts of it in a jocular manner and twits his fellows with having been scored off, he is no longer mean, but a comical fellow. Mere cowardice is shameful. Cowardice boasted of with humorous exaggerations and grotesque gestures can be passed off as funny. Cruelty is shameful, unless the cruel man can represent it as a practical joke. A thousand body or even blasphemous jokes do not help towards a man's damnation so much as his discovery that almost anything he wants to do can be done, not only without the disapproval, but with the admiration of his fellows, if only it can get itself treated as a joke. And this temptation can be almost entirely hidden from your patient by that English seriousness about humor. Any suggestion that there might be too much of it can be represented to him as puritanical, or as betraying a lack of humor. But flippancy is the best of all. In the first place, it is very economical. Only a clever human can make a real joke about virtue, or indeed about anything else. Any of them can be trained to talk as if virtue were funny. Among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it, but every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy that I know, and it is quite free from the dangers inherent in the other sources of laughter. It is a thousand miles away from joy, it deadens instead of sharpening the intellect, and it excites no affection between those who practice it. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape.